You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, April 2nd, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, folks. Welcome back, Jay. We took a couple of weeks off. Yes, I did, unfortunately. Yeah, sad news against everyone's very sorry about Michael. I know he's a really, really oh, close, close friend of yours. Yeah, thanks for, for mentioning it on the show. Um, yeah, I really just, there was no way I could record the show the past couple of weeks. It just took, a, it took me a while to get my feet underneath me. I mean, this is just the way that it is. You know, bottom line is, um, it just doesn't really matter how old you are. It's just devastating to lose someone that you're close to. And I, I absolutely loved him and thought he was just just one of the best people I've, I had ever met in my life. And um, and on top of that, you know, he was an avid skeptic and a very intelligent guy, very just very into the community. He did a lot of stuff for the SGU. Talent, talented yeah. as hell. You know, I just found it's just very difficult. You know, I don't have any religion to soften this blow. I don't have any way. It's just a big, hard razor blade, you know. There's just nothing between me and it. And it's it's really hard. Jay, I thought it was easy to be an atheist. I thought it was a cop out. Come on. Yeah, well, you know, the, the fact hard. that I have no morality, yeah. you know, helps a little bit. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you cashed in all your feelings when you gave up God when you were eight. You know. Well, that's what the uh, that guy from Duck Dynasty thinks, right? If you're an atheist, hey, rape is okay, murder is okay, everything's okay. Oh God, did you hear that? Okay. Like seriously, that was so. I actually <laughs> was insulted from hearing that. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Hundred million, <laughs> hundreds of millions of Americans were insulted right with you. So we're recording the show on April 2nd, just so we don't have to record on April 1st. Yeah, we're superstitious <laughs> there. <laughs> Although, Cause, well, the jokes would have been endless. I mean, come on. The, uh, there is a, of gags. there is a movement to make April 1st Skeptics Day, which I think is. What? Really? Convert, well, among skeptics. No, we, sorry, we can convert April Fool's Day into you should be more skeptical day, basically. Why not? Well, yeah. I'm all for that. I could, we could hijack it. Turn it into something useful. Yeah. <laughs> All I think of when April, when April first rolls around, I always go back to the horrible prank that Steve and his wife Joss played on all of us. Oh um, gosh! And Perry got totally lit up, pissed off. Oh. The the basic idea was that Steve was going to live out his life as a doctor. Where in D.C., Steve? Yeah, that, I, I pretended like I I was getting a job after residency. That I was I was offered a job in D.C. And I was going to move down there. It's totally plausible. It was totally because that's, that's where yep. Joss's family is from that area, you know. And I just remember thinking, like, I was so angry at you, <laughs> like, like Steve's gonna move away, I'm never gonna see him again, you know. I just that's it. I'll see him at Christmas. Um, I, I, I even pe- made a fake letter from the hospital that hired me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you. But the person that it affected the most was Perry, and he he got so pissed at you, Steve. He was talking crap about you behind your back the whole time. <laughs> he, he never forgave me. He, no, he, he never did. He, no, he didn't. His days, he didn't. He did not forgive you. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I got, it was got, my one big April Fool's prank. I got out of my system, and I never did it again. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. It still resonates. <laughs> well, plus you'd never let me get away with it again. I mean, I shot my wad on that one. Uh, there was a really funny SGU-involved uh, April Fool's thing bob you sent that to me what was it uh yeah this was a uh this is a post written by terry simpson 
And it was Simpson a link Day. to an article. And the, the name of the article was Food Babe to Join Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Terry Simpson. And I just saw that and, and broke out laughing. And he, he basically described how we, we hired her to be on the show and we had recorded an episode. And it was just, a, it was, yeah, it was my favorite April Fool's joke this year. And uh, he, he, he did a real good job of it. The, the comments were funny. And ho- hopefully, hopefully there wasn't too many people that even entertained the possibility of that happening even for a nanosecond yeah but it was still even though it was obvious to some or most it was still very funny well done terry <laughs> well played. although i'd love to have her on the show yeah we have an open invitation for uh, the food babe yep. to come on the sgu so we can have a very polite and respectful chat about her ideas about food yep. and oxygen and things like that <laughs> <laughs> all right bob <laughs> Tell us about this week's Forgotten Superheroes of Science. Yes, this week's Forgotten Superheroes of Science. I will be covering Sandra Faber, who is currently a professor of astronomy and physics. And she has made many scientific advances in her ongoing career, including the co-discovery of the Great Attractor. Ever hear of her? No. She discovered Raquel Welch. Oh, yeah. Nice one. Okay. So, uh, Faber was born in 1944 in the great city of Boston, Massachusetts. That's all I got a chuckle. She, re- she, yeah, yeah. She received her bachelor's degree in physics and a PhD in astronomy. Two mm-hmm. awesome degrees, if I were going to get a couple. She has definitely had an interesting career. Uh, many, many interesting little highlights. She found an interesting relationship between the brightness of galaxies and the velocity of stars within them. I'd never, I didn't know there was a relationship like that. Oh yeah. They're second cousins once removed. That's called the Faber-Jackson relation. Uh, she demonstrated how important dark matter halos are around galaxies for their evolution. And these halos were, I think they were totally unknown just even a short while ago. So that was interesting. Also, she was in on the design of one of the best telescopes on the planet, the famous Keck telescope in Hawaii. I like that one. But my, my favorite though was uh, the discovery of the great attractor. Now for years, it was a mystery why the Milky Way was moving towards the constellation Centaurus at about 1.4 million miles per hour. Uh, they weren't sure why this was happening. She worked with a team of astronomers called the Seven Samurai, which is a cool little nickname. <laughs> okay. She she and her team noticed – they noticed a flow of galaxies over hundreds of millions of light years, a huge span of space. And they ter- they determined that it must be due to a huge uh, source of mass that's obscured by all the gas and dust on the, of the Milky Way. So even though it was very far away, it was – our galaxy was right in the way of it. So we really couldn't see it in visible light at all. All the gas dust was blocking it. Uh, so much so that it's actually called the zone of avoidance. What? Uh, cause, cause, yeah. Wait a minute. Could, That's from Planet right, of the Apes. <laughs> no, the, the, that wasn't the radiation. It was the forbidden zone. Forbidden zone. Same yeah. idea. They realized that there was some huge mass there. So they dubbed it, uh, they dubbed that gravity well, the great attractor, which is a, really good name. They realized they needed something really pithy. So this then led to the discovery of the Norma supercluster at the center of the Great Attractor once they were able you know, to have powerful enough X-ray telescopes to really see what was there and, and pierce the gas and dust. The Norma supercluster 
um, was initially estimated to have a mass of many, many billions of suns. Now, they've, they've downgraded the mass a bit, but clearly this is quite a big supercluster. And like many discoveries in science, and especially really good science, this led other scientists to yet even more discoveries about this. And what they found more recently is that an even greater supercluster, much farther away, I think 500 million light years away beyond the great attractor, was another supercluster. This is called the Shapley supercluster. And this thing is big. We're talking about 10 quadrillion solar masses, according to a couple of sources I read. Uh, so lot, I mean, just imagine 10 quadrillion solar masses. Um, it's actually the most massive gravitationally bound object in the visible universe. So guys, remember Sandy Faber? Mention her to your friends. Maybe when discussing the comparisons of galactic peculiar motion to density maps from IRAS. All right. Thanks, Bob. Uh, Evan, you're going to tell us about strange radio signals from space. <laughs> the final frontier, indeed. Hey, did you guys know that since Probably. 2001... <laughs> did you guys know that since 2001, astronomers have been analyzing a series of radio wave emissions called... Fast radio bursts, or FRBs, which emanate from outside of our galaxy. And astronomers have detected a pattern. A pattern which, according to the data, leaves open a plausible case for extragalactical intelligence. What? That Galactical? Th how could that not be really? in the news? Whoa. It was in the news this week. That's why we're talking about it. And it was picked up by quite a few places online. Yeah, but, okay, but just right out of the gate, I'm going to tell you, I don't think there's aliens, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but go ahead. What's the, what's the skinny, man? No, I'll put it in. I'll put it in a sort of context for you. We all know the movie Contact. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't seen Contact or read the book, the book was authored by Carl Sagan. If you haven't seen the movie or read the book, I have two words for you. Spoiler alert. In Contact, a SETI scientist discovers an alien signal being carried over radio waves. The alien's beacon is a series of pulses and sets of numbers, starting with two, ending with 101. They're all the prime numbers in that set. And, of course, only creatures that can work with mathematics could generate such a signal. Yes. Since 2001, not the movie, but the year, since 2001, there have been 10 of these FRBs, these bursts. And according to New Scientist magazine... These bursts last just a few milliseconds, but they erupt with about as much energy as the sun releases in a month. Yeah, that's a oh, lot. Oh, wow. Boom. Well, that makes it a pretty good marker, I would say. It's not just some background noise or subtle changes. You know, these are like hits. No, it's a thing. Definitely. Yeah. Astronomers have been analyzing FRB data, and what they've determined is that the delay between the arrival of the first wave set of waves and the last set of waves of each of these bursts is always close to a multiple of 187.5. And this was confirmed in 2014 when the Parkes Telescope in New South Wales, Australia, caught a burst in action. And that's the first time astronomers have actually caught the burst in action. Others were found by sifting through data after the bursts. So what does this mean? Delay between the arrival of the waves? Well, al although these bursts are extremely short in duration, they still have a front end and a back end to them. The front wave hits you, obviously, first, before the back wave does. The high-frequency portion of the wave arrives ahead of the low-frequency portion of the wave. And there's that time difference. This is called dispersion measure. And each burst has a dispersion measurement that is a multiple of the number 187.5. And if you line it all up on a graph, like they did for us at New Scientist Online, you'll see it makes a very pretty picture of a rather straight diagonal line. 
And analysts put about a 5 in in 10,000 probability that this lineup is a coincidence. Mm -hmm. But as you alluded to earlier, Steve, there are people who are sort of skeptical of the idea that this is somehow alien intelligence. There is uh, a lot of other things to be considered. This is not proof. So general rule, we we find something that has some kind of mathematical regularity to it, you know, radio signal. And then that has to either, if it's not coincidence, once we rule out coincidence, that there really is some mathematical pattern there, then either the mathematical pattern is a deliberate intelligence signal or it represents some fundamental physical property. So if you, you remember LGMs, right, little green men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the mathematical precision was just the timing of the of the pulses you know the pulses oh, sorry, were coming yeah. at extreme regularity but it, you know eventually yeah we discovered those were pulsars wrote they were rotating neutron, neutron stars, stars that happened to be aiming uh, their their radio waves at us in this case yeah so if we accept the premise that the regularity the multiples of 187.5 is real and not artifactual, then we, then we need to figure out what the natural phenomenon is that is producing that mathematical pattern. Hard to prove a negative, right? It's hard to prove that there isn't some underlying physical re, uh, cause for that, only that we don't know what one would be. We don't know what it is. You know, it's not just, really positive evidence that it is an alien or intelligent. Oh, of course not. It's, it's just it's- intriguing until we figure out what the I mean, it's also intriguing if it is a new physical property because that's new, right? It's something cool. Either way, I just it's a win-win. I, I find the the even the remote concept you know, idea that this could be aliens. It's so provocative. Like I just love imagining like these other creatures that have some completely different way of thinking and of existing. Right? You know, they're not going to be humans, of course. They're going to be some other kind of life form. Oh my God, that moment when humanity, if humanity ever meets an alien species, that has got to be and forever will be the most profound moment of all time. Now, Evan, yeah. is there any significance to 187.5 or that just happens to be the interval? Just happens to be the interval. I didn't see any other significance regarding that number. Did you read something? No, I mean, you can't say whether this could equally, in my eyes, be a natural, you know, the result of natural processes or some, or maybe there's some weird, you know, mathematical relationship. But, yeah. you know, you could always, you could always find some sort of weird mathematical relationship, right? I mean, that's what, that's what numerology is all about. So even if they did find, you know, if you multiply these three prime numbers and divide yeah. by pi, so what? I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's like Bode's Law like we discussed last week. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it does have those aspects to it. Certainly other things that we've talked about on the show that, you know, we're pattern-seeking creatures, so we're looking to make any kind of uh, uh, order out of chaos that we possibly can, and this is sort of just maybe another uh, another means of doing that. But yeah, so, but un- until we figured it out, and figure it out. It is, it is a candidate signal. Uh, I think to, for me, the big argument against it being alien is how freaking powerful it is. Now, I don't know, guys. How, what kind of power are we talking about here? Well, a month um, of the output of our sun. That's huge. 
All right. It's amazing. Oh, Compared wow. to other things well, that we know about in the universe, how does that, where does that fit on that scale? That I don't know. I don't know how to compare well, it on a, on a universal scale. I mean, that's not a deal killer for me, Steve. It's, yeah, it makes it more likely that it's a natural object, but hey, I mean, all you need is a civilization, what, a thousand years more advanced than us? And maybe that, maybe that wouldn't be, that's not so crazy to, to think that, you know? But if it was something that was truly, uh, you know, beyond that, like, like, like a gamma ray burst type of thing, um, that would be, you know, a little bit tougher to swallow. But yeah, that would be cool if, imagine if they, they could, uh, you know, marshal those energies. But yeah, I mean, I think it's still unlikely and, you know, still keep my fingers crossed. It'll be, it'll be, as I said, it'll be interesting either way. We're going to discover something new about the universe. Yeah, true. As long Science as, in action. Yep. yep. Now, if, if we discover yet another one and it's still at that interval of 187.5, I mean, Every time that happens, the probability that it's real goes way, way, way up, you know. It's something cool. All right. Uh, I'm going to just discuss a couple of items this week, but first a very, very quick one. There's been a very interesting peer review scandal, which is oh boy, always yeah. sucky. Biomed Central, which is a UK company that publishes 277 peer-reviewed journals, announced that uh, it is retracting 43 articles because of fabricated – Peer review, not fabricated data, but fabricated peer wow. review. That is terrible. Yeah, it's anything like this is always awful. You know, obviously, science requires transparency and honesty, and anything that interferes with that is just always terrible to deal with. It, it reduces confidence in the whole system. But you know, at least the system polices itself. You know, and this sort of thing uh, comes to light. So yeah. what they found was that people were essentially peer-reviewing their own articles. You know, peer review is when you submit an article to a peer-reviewed journal, the editors take a look at it. If they think it's promising, they'll select, you know, two or three people from the same field and, you know, experts in the field send it to them to, to anonymously pour over the paper and make sure that it's, it's up to snuff, right? That it's conclusions flow from the data, that it's references all of the appropriate, uh, studies, that it's, that didn't make any factual or statistical errors. I mean, they're really supposed to, to vet it up and down. But you could, you know, you could put your thumb on the scale, but if your article goes to one of your colleagues, one of your friends, you know, peer reviews your own article. Or, hey, if you peer review it yourself, I mean, you know, what's better than that? So that's just a way of subverting the process and getting what would otherwise be substandard articles through the process. So that's what they discovered. Stuff like that. Stuff that's um, subverting the whole point of peer review. It turns out, that most of the articles they uncovered were from China. Oh boy, interesting. Why? Why China, Steve? Well, we don't know. I mean, they they mm. they're investigating. They're investigating now. The the Biomed Central said this this is not a quote unquote China problem. That they get a lot of robust research from China. They think that it's just it's a peer review problem that just happens to have clustered in China, but whatever. I think they're being a little politically correct there, perhaps. Sure, there's lots of good research coming out of China, but, you know, that's where that's where this cluster of this particular type of fraud was coming from this time. Uh, we'll keep an eye on this story, see if anything else comes from it. You know, hopefully it's it's just an isolated case of, of unethical behavior, and Biomed Central did the right thing by just retracting the papers, coming out with it, saying this is the problem, we're going to fix it. Uh, that's what they have to do. No cover-up, no minimization. Just say, yep, there's a problem. We're going to correct it as best we can. Jay, I understand that despite what you might think, that the world is actually getting more 
green over time. Well, that that's what was misleading about the uh, the title, but it's not. That's not the case. But the, let me let me give you the the full All picture right, here. Strain us out. So, right. a, a collection of scientists from many organization organizations contributed to a recent study of the global vegeta- vegetation biomass, um, or mm. more accurately, they were looking about at how much carbon is out there. They took 20 years of satellite data and charted the changes in carbon levels. And the scientists found that there has been a significant increase in vegetation since 2003. Now, the main locations are in China due to tree replanting, the regrowth of forests in former Soviet states, uh, and more growth in tropical savannas and shrublands in Australia, Africa, and South America due to higher rainfall as of late. This equates to 4 billion tons of carbon stored in these new plants, which on the surface you would say that's awesome, right? You know, we, we were able to, to sequester 4 billion tons in this new plant growth. Things are looking good, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, unfortunately, that's not the, the whole picture here. So let me, let me, uh, get, go sideways a little bit, give you some other information that, that will help you, um, really understand what's going on here. So carbon dioxide makes up about 0.03% of our atmosphere. And there's a significant carbon exchange between, you know, the air, the ocean, and the land as, as temperatures change and as seasons come and go and everything. Now, carbon dioxide is a very, very small percent of, percentage of our atmosphere, but it is the main gas in regards to climate change. And the more plants that exist, the bet, it's the better, right? Because plants store carbon. So during photosynthesis, during this process, light energy is converted into chemical energy, and that is later used to feed the plants, as an example. Yeah, so the bottom line is that there is a carbon system. You know, the carbon's moving around, but there's a finite amount of carbon in the environment, in the carbon cycle, if they call it, as I call it. Of course, we're burning fossil fuels. We're releasing more carbon into the carbon cycle. Exactly, right? So chemical energy is stored in carbohydrate molecules like sugars, right? So uh, maple syrup, as an example. Delicious, right? <laughs> Which is made of, uh, made from the synthesis of carbon dioxide and water. So in most cases, oxygen is the byproduct or the exhaust of this process. So how awesome is nature to give off oxygen as a, by- a byproduct of, a, of that chemical reaction? And Love with you, that, nature. Yeah, right? It's, it's just really cool. Like when you think about like a lot of the chemical reactions that humans are involved in. So photosynthesis is still, is the source of organic compounds and most of the energy required for life. That's why we're here, you know, or that's why life grew to the degree that it did on this planet. Or you could say that's why we have the kind of life that we have. That is right. that is a more accurate way to put yeah. it. Carbon is locked inside the plants, and the more plants we have, the more carbon is taken out of the atmosphere. So that's why we like this when we see a, a 4 billion tons of carbon being stored in new plant growth. That's That's a good thing. Yai Lu, the study's lead author and a scientist at the University of New South Wales, said that 4 billion tons of newly trapped carbon is nothing compared to the 60 billion tons of carbon that were released during the same time period from burning fossil fuels, as Steve said. And oddly, and I've never heard this before, cement production. Yeah, I didn't hear that one before either. That's a significant release of carbon into the atmosphere. Hmm. Wow. So is tilling the soil, by the way. When you till the soil, you release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Yeah, and how about um, your compost? You know, is that bad? No, well, and anything that is, that's why it's carbon neutral if it's just moving it around the cycle. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we want to keep as much of it sequestered as possible 
Yeah, we're you know blocking I mean? it. So if the, even if the, the total amount of carbon isn't changing, if more of it's in plants than in the atmosphere, that will reduce how much is in the atmosphere at any given time. But that carbon will is not permanent. It'll move around. Again, the problem with fossil fuels is that we're taking previously permanently stored carbon under the ground and releasing it back into the carbon cycle. where All over the yeah, planet, yeah, yeah, like just pumping it out. So, yeah, so the problem is that even these small gains that this news item points out can be wiped out really fast from shifting weather and further climate change. And this is, you know, I guess more of like a snow day in in March. You know, yeah. it's it's doesn't really mean that much. Scientists say that this growth was expected because the world is warmer and wetter due to climate change. And as the ice melts and the temperatures go up even a little bit, the tree line moves north. So more plant growth, you know, replacing, um, you know, frozen land and uh, rising CO2 in the atmosphere is a precursor to vegetation growth. That's just the way that it works. And they call that the CO2 fertilization effect. Mm -hmm. So not that this needs to be said, but, you know, we, of course, need to stop pumping CO2 into the atmosphere and stop cutting down our existing, you know, large caches of vegetation. They're supposed to be replenishing it, I think. Aren't there laws in place saying that if you take down so much, you have to replenish so much? In some countries, there are those sorts of regulations. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, the big problem is countries that are home to our tropical rainforests. Uh, that were, that's where a lot of our vegetation is. All right, Bob, I understand that if I really wanted to, I could get from here to the other side of the world in 38 minutes. Yeah, that's pretty much my entire opener right there, Steve. Um, <laughs> you, you guys, you guys have heard about the gravity tunnel. Steve, I know you and I have yes, talked about this yes. multiple times, but for years, it's been known that if you jump down a hole through the entire earth, you would pop out and come to rest on the other side in 42 minutes. But would you now, survive wait, it, Bob? Would you survive minute. that? <laughs> wait not, a minute. Not in the slightest. Well, let's say no, if the get... tunnel were, were <laughs> environmentally controlled, let's just do a thought experiment. So, okay, you, you know, experiment. if it were, if it were kept cool and you didn't hit the sides, oh, you know, you're just falling straight down through a tube. Yeah, you would survive. You'd be in free fall for some amount of time. As long as you were, Something grabs you at the other end. No, you'd have to be. You would have to be in a in an air free a vacuum. Yes, that is yes. That is assu the assumption because the air resistance would would fuck all this up. So there's no the assumption is nowhere. And we're suspending gravity at some point here too. Right? No, no. This is taking no. gravity into account. This is that's the whole kind of the whole point. Really? So yeah. You, you pass through the center of the Earth and you keep going despite gravity pulling back you towards the center. Well, yeah, oh. but you would. That's the point. If there were if there were no if you eliminate wind resistance, you would. Go up exactly as far as you drop down, right? It's like it's like a pendulum. Imagine a, a pendulum. You know, it's the same thing. Pendulum, the, I get. It's yeah. the right, same thing. This is a well, pendulum. It's the same thing. It's all gravity. A pendulum swings because of gravity, right? I mean, it's the same damn thing. It. That's why you know. That's why it stops on its way up and heads back you would down. Clear the surface on the other side before the swing pulls you back. Well, if you if the heights you, were you, the same, yeah. Or if you, you would if you it. However, you leaped in is how you would come out. If you if you jumped up in the air. Five feet and then fell. That's how uh, exactly how high. But let me finish, guys. Okay. Um, right. So I, I did. Apparently, this is this problem is still brought up in physics physics classes, and you're asked to basically imagine a tunnel with no air, like we said, 
uh, connecting the opposite sides of the planet, like London and the Antipodes Islands, for example. And like we said, there, yeah, there's engineering problems. Forget about those. It's We're talking 3 million atmospheres at the core and 6,000 degrees. Yeah, we're just... That's gone. Just don't even worry about that because that's part of okay. that's part of the thought experiment. So, but regardless, even though you've got all these caveats, still the answer is can be instructive and interesting. If you look at the equation that they used to use that came up with forty two minutes, you would it would reveal the following: that gravity would accelerate you unhindered by air friction, of course, mm-hmm. to about twenty nine thousand kilometers per hour or eighteen thousand miles per hour. So you are flying clearly. Much faster than terminal velocity when you jump out of a plane, which is like about 120 miles an hour. So gravity would then start slowing you down after you pass the core, since it would be only at that time that the majority of Earth's mass would be increasingly behind you. If you could stop in the middle of the Earth, you would be weightless, right? Because gravity is essentially pulling you uh, the same in every direction. And uh, so you're so that's the, you don't feel the force of gravity. So every any direction you go is up. So but then you would stop ex- uh, your deceleration and you would hang momentarily in the air for just a moment, just outside the tunnel on the exact opposite side of the planet. And this step off, step off at that. Point. And it takes it's forty two minute trip, and that's what everyone has been saying for years. And uh, I learned that in high school, it was forty two. Right? Minutes. Oh yeah. Yeah, this is going back decades, many decades, Steve. So, I mean, just imagine that for a second, getting on the other side of the planet in 42 minutes. That's faster than the International Space Station can do half an orbit. You would be – guess how fast you would have to be flying um, to do that in a jet? What What mock? 25. You f- – I guessed it. Holy shit. Did you read my post thousand, today? No, I, I guessed. Miles. I just guessed. Yeah, you nailed it. Miles it's, to go around. it's Mach 25. So that is one, uh, one hell of a fast – Jet. So one of the benefits of contemplating this scenario is, is, like I said, it could help you teach physics principles, and that's why they bring it up today. You could you could learn about simple harmonic motion, like a weight bouncing on a spring, or the pendulum that I mentioned. So now the new bit here is Canadian scientist Alexander Klotz uh, has been thinking about this. He published it in the American Journal of Physics. And if you look at the previous calculations, they assumed a uniform density of the Earth, right? I've read it compared to like a billiard ball. It's a uniform density. That's implicit in how 42 minutes is derived. But actually, that's that's not really how the Earth is, right? So Klotz used seismic data uh, from what's called the preliminary reference Earth model to determine that the, the Earth, you know, the exact change in density of the interior of the Earth, which goes from the surface, 1,000 kilograms per cubic meter, to uh, at the core, 13,000 kilograms per cubic meter. So it's a big, big density difference that the that the equation never took into account. Now, also, he uh, the seismic data tells you that there's a big jump in density near the outer core, which kind of makes sense that that density would go up so fast at the core. So if you plug th- this information, you plug these numbers into the new, more realistic equation, it showed a result of 38 minutes and 11 seconds compared to the usual 42 minutes and 12 seconds. So that's that's the bottom line of what he did. Now, surprisingly, this is an interesting aside. Surprisingly, it was noticed that if you perform this calculation while you ignore the seismic data, and essentially what you're doing is just you assume the force of gravity is constant throughout the trip. Just assume it always pulls the same, and it's not it's not slowly decreasing like the 42-minute one uh, tells you. You would end up with a trip time of exactly 38 minutes. So only 11 seconds off of of the uh, the new result. So a very so making a very very simple assumption, you get an almost perfect answer, which is just a, which is really interesting. So basically, the very simple assumption of a constant force during the fall 
uh, yields a better answer than the the original similarly simple assumption of uniform density Earth, like the, the billiard ball. So you're trading one simple assumption with another, and you get and you're and you're more accurate. And the reason why that works so well is surprisingly. Because the real world increasing of density of the Earth actually keeps the force of gravity fairly constant while you're falling. So if you jump in that tunnel, the force of gravity you fe- you f- will feel when you're 20 feet below the Earth surface of the Earth is pretty much the same as if you when you're 10 miles below it. Yeah. So it's not a coincidence. It's it actually makes sense. Yeah. Okay. It, it wow. makes sense. Now you could say that um, you know once you get into the core though that the the density changes so much that the gravitational pull on you is actually is weakening fast, but that doesn't really matter because you're going 18,000 miles an hour. So you're whipping through that core so fast that it doesn't really make – it doesn't really affect – Yeah, the amount of time entire, you the spend entire trip time is minimal. Yeah. Right. So the end result then is that the constant force assumption – Results in an answer very close to the 38 minutes and 11 seconds. So uh, finally, um, it's often been said, and Steve, I bet you you're thinking this, that when you're falling down a tunnel, it doesn't matter how long the tunnel is. If you're going on the other side of the earth or if you're going only a quarter of the way around, it's still the same trip, 42 minutes. And that is true. And if you think about it, it makes sense why that would happen because you're not traveling as fast, but you have less distance to travel and it kind of perfectly balances out. Now, this new information is telling us something a little bit different, that a shorter tunnel does balloon back up to 42 minutes. So the longest tunnel is 38, 38 minutes. The, the shorter tunnels converge onto 40, 42 minutes. That's and, ironic. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's just a, it's just not, it's not symmetrical like, like, uh, the 42 minute one is. And, and finally, um, the, uh, Steve, tell me if you thought of this one. The shorter, the shorter trip tunnels, always made me think, well, how would that even work? Because if you're going down a tunnel that's kind of slicing through a, you know, the one side of the earth, then then wouldn't gravity be pulling you towards one side of the wall? Yes, but you're you're assuming that you are sliding with no friction. That's that's the thought experiment. Oh, okay. So there so right, then there's another another thing I have to suspend my disbelief about. Yeah, it, it, they would have to If you're on rails, another rail, assumption. Yeah, frictionless rails. That's Frict- the- Yes, frictionless rails. I thought of that as well. That would do it uh, as too. But uh so yeah, so interesting not a not a major revolution, but just an in- interesting tweak to a very common uh, a common equation and and scenario that people have been talking about for decades. And what do the hollow earth theorists say about <laughs> this thought experiment? I uh, I sent them an email. They haven't replied yet. Yeah, that's too bad. Mm. Oh that's yeah, hey bad. wait, they, they, they replied. They just replied. They they say uh, duh. <laughs> That's, a, that's an entirely a very different, hollow answer. I say, oh yeah, that's an oh, entirely yeah. different set of assumptions. <laughs> One more quick news item. Uh, you guys hear of compression clothing? For what? For for working out? Is that a out? new line by for like weights? For Joseph sports? For sports performance? For runners? Yes. And athletics. Well, let me tell you what I heard about this. I remember talking to a buddy of mine at work. He was a power lifter, and he said that in powerlifting, what they would do is they would put on the tightest. Uh, it would take like two guys. <laughs> it would take people to help you to get these things on, and it would be just so incredibly tight. And he said he was able, at least, to lift more because and I'm not sure why. I would just have to guess that that all the support that this the the garment is giving you actually helped him to lift more weight. So yeah, yeah. so this must be related to what you're talking about, Steve. Yes, that it is related. That is that's what we're talking about. So this is <laughs> we we've talked about the fact that sports. That athletes tend to be superstitious and just a little. little bit, and they tend to do things which may not actually have a dramatic physiological effect. But if it 
might have a mental effect if they think it makes them perform better. Right. They, like wearing magnets. Yeah, like wearing magnets. Among other, among other Remember things. Remember the, uh, the last Summer Olympics, I think. It might have even been the one before that where it really peaked. Seeing all of the, the athletes tape. with the different colored tape in different weird patterns over their body. There's still Kin- yes, the yes. kinetic tape. To- total <laughs> bullshit. Just, there's just nothing to it whatsoever. So the question is, is there anything to compression clothing for athletic performance? What do you guys think? Oh, uh, yes. I would say, I would guess yes, uh, based on my anecdotal experience with a friend. Yes. Yeah, so we all know about anecdotal experience and friend of a yes. friend. Data. So the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is no. Is it re- yeah. It's really no. Yeah, okay. Really I'm, no. I'm actually Ooh. not too surprised. Uh, so there was a, yeah, a recent study looking at the effects of uh, compression sleeves for calves on athletic performance and there was no significant effect what kind of what kind of athletic performance are we talking purely purely a cardiovascular no it's also like running speed or you know well i mean yes it's, it's, it's so for aerobic and aerobic athletes not not anaerobic well it, you know it yeah i don't think that there's any particular indication for which it's been proven and of course you could always keep okay. breaking it out and breaking it out and, and yeah. saying Looking at increase, increasingly smaller slices of the claim that haven't yet been specifically explored. But, and, okay. and, you know, it's not, I'm not saying it's impossible. It's not, it's something's happening. You know, it's doing something physical to the body. And, um, it, it certainly is possible that it has some vascular effects or, or muscular effects, whatever. So are you, as you said, Bob, I think your assumption was there's some biomechanical effect there. There's more support for the joints or whatever. Um, and it just, but it just goes to show you, you, all you skeptics out there, that this is one thing one guy told me, like literally, like ten years ago, and I never researched it, but I always kind of assumed, yeah, it was plausible. Just stuck in and, your head, yeah, and, and something, and you stuck believed. in my head, yeah. and I, and it's something that always felt that, yeah, that makes sense, and and it probably does work. Basically, I mean, he seemed so sure about it. It had to be right. Therefore. In 2013, there was a systematic review of the studies that have been done so far looking at compression uh, uh, clothing and athletic performance. And they essentially concluded that while there may be a small effect, uh, for example, in vertical jump height uh, and Mm -hmm. in short duration sprints, you know, so in certain types of exercise, that Gosh. the effects are essentially insignificant uh, if they exist. So that's interesting you say that, Steve, about the vertical jump height, because when we've looked into other things like, you know, mouth guards we've talked about before, that's the only area in which there may have been some statistical significance in any of the data. So it's very interesting, I think, that you bring that up. Yeah, I mean, it's really the one that's most susceptible to just the placebo effect, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. so, Steve, I, di- I did notice you mentioned that there was a noticeable effect on the uh, a high jump and the um what was the second one it I didn't was... say noticeable it was there was a, what was there's it? a slight signal there but it's not significant yeah and there's still the possibility the researchers mentioned that there may be some help in recovery it help, may help the muscles remove lactate for example but that's still not proven that that's uh just a possibility at this point so yeah, the thing is, if there was, if there were a big effect, there's enough research that we would be seeing it by now. It's always hard to rule out a progressively small effect. So this is probably one of those things that, yeah, maybe there's a tiny effect. There's nothing big, but it's mainly placebo effect. It's just athletes, athletes like to have something to do to think that they're getting an edge or they're improving their performance, but 
it's often not rigorously science-based. Well, guys, we're going to do another movie review this week. This time, the movie is Going Clear, an HBO documentary on the Church of Scientology. What did you guys think about this? Oh, boy. It was it was very powerful. Yeah, I just thought, as far as documentaries go, it was um, extraordinarily provocative. Um, I... I already knew quite a bit about Scientology. Uh, you know, I just learned a lot, though, about L. Ron Hubbard, things I didn't know about his past. Um, and then there was quite a bit of, of interesting activity over the past five years that I, I hadn't been completely um, fully read up on, which was a lot of the defections of uh, people that are high yeah. up in the church. And, you know, look, the, the my quick summary is the movie's fantastic. Um, I, I, I have nothing to say negative about any anything about it. It was done wonderfully. It was very powerful. You, they had to pick what they talked about because there was probably so much to talk yeah. about. But mm-hmm. it's so impactful, guys. I, I can't believe how evil Scientology is. It's, it's. It, I didn't it, think yeah. it went down that bad. It, it was two levels worse than I even imagined. Wow. Exactly. Well put, Bob. Like it just was way worse than I thought it was ever going to be. Yeah, some stunning revelations, I think, that even those of us who have been familiar with this cult for, for quite a long time, decades, in fact, it, it came as sort of a, a stunning, unfortunate surprise to us that they're actually, you know, they threw people in the hole, basically, their own yeah. officers. These people who, you know, for whatever reason, <laughs> felt that they were not uh, um, compliant enough, shall we say, to put it nicely. So what do you get for that? Oh, I've been with the church for 17 years. Well, into the hole you go and we'll feed you some gruel and live with the rats and go crazy until you want to, you know, do anything or say anything in order to get out of that sort of uh, prison. Well, the movie starts by going into the history of L. Ron Hubbard. You see quite a bit of footage of him, uh, some unseen footage before this film came out. You know, I don't want to make personal judgments on him about his looks and everything. It's hard to not do it, though, because he was extraordinarily creepy. He he just gave me well, such yeah. a... Yeah. Right? Like he just has a, a massive creep factor. And I found out things, the way that he treated his wife and, and his personal abuse of his wife, mm-hmm. you know, you could just see the origins of the church in, in his psychosis or whatever was wrong with him, whatever, whatever he was trying to figure out in his life manifested itself in the church. That, that was mm-hmm. one of the interesting takeaways that I found out, like that he was essentially writing Dianetics, not, not as his, treaty on on mental health and and how to live a life but it was him dealing with his own mental issues I mean, he he really was a piece of work you know by all accounts him you know he was very abusive he, he was a megalomaniac apparently you know, he was very deliberate in what he did in terms of you know, first he wanted to create a new branch of psychiatry and when he got rejected for being a crank he just said, okay, well, screw you guys. I want to make it into a religion and and demonize psychiatry, you know. And then, of course, there's the famous L. Ron Hubbard quote, you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, start a religion. Quote. Yeah. And, you know, as they the thread of the movie passes from the history of L. Ron Hubbard and his, you know, he was in the military and he was, you know, essentially kicked out. For, for incredibly poor performance. Um, and he lied about. Incompetence. Yeah, total incompetence. He lied about, you know, his, his record. And he was a very, very prolific science fiction writer. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll absolutely give him that. 
Um, I think they said in the in the film that he had over a thousand books published. Like he had he had been more published than anybody else. Yeah, um, a lot of it pulp fiction, but yeah. But still, you know, he was he he put his time in, and then they slide it into you know passing the baton as as the years go by, and he dies, and then uh, Miskovich takes over. Then they get into that guy. Oh, talk about you're saying creep factor, Jay. That he gave me the creeps as well. Yeah, he he is extraordinarily creepy. That guy has just been. L. Ron Hubbard was basically warming up the abuse, and this guy took the baton and and he went absolutely apeshit with it. He incredible abuse that he he put down on everyone that he came in contact with, and talk about a control freak. Talk about you know a guy that is not not doing any of the things that he's claiming, you know, bettering humanity is probably the last thing on his list. Just a a mean, mindful, deliberate man that knows what he wants and doesn't care who he steps on or how he gets to where wherever his goals are. I can't imagine that this religion, in the upper echelon of this religion, the people that are doing all of the horrible things that, that know the activity of, of the religion, the actual things that are going on and the hard decisions that they need to make and the horrible things that they do. I can't imagine any of those people deep down really believe they're doing good work, that they're doing work to help humanity. I mean, at that point, the ones that don't leave, that stay in there, I just think it's a collection of horribly uh, demented people. You know, they're just horrible people that do horrible things and, and know of all the, the crimes that the church commits and they don't do anything about it. Just a sick organization from top to bottom. You know, it robs people throughout the, their lifetime in there. It fills their head full of a construct. Um, some of the members were saying, you know, the, the Scientology construct was so bankrupt. It's so bankrupt. It doesn't give you any real skills. All it does is put, draw you in with the cult, make you feel like you have a sense of community early on and that, you know, you have some type of like plan that you're on. But one guy was saying in the movie, it was so interesting. He was basically saying that every level above you lies to the level below them, saying how great it is to be at the level above them. Oh, nice. She was. Yeah. Basically, you've bought your way up to that point. You've invested, you know, a lot of your life, a lot of your, all your money at that point, And they've, They've sucked you for all your physical resources by that point. Yeah, it takes two hundred thousand dollars to basically get to that to the to that point where you're at the top levels, and then you go through these eight top levels that they have. And at level three, that's when they give you the briefcase with all of the nonsense mm-hmm. about the religion. And this oh, is those what, those are L. Ron Hubbard's handwritten notes that you get to see with your own eyes. Yeah. Oh, you really? know what? One of the defectors at that point thought. Ah, this is their test to see if you're crazy. If you buy this, then you're a nut job. Ah, oh. yeah, Steve, you're talking about Paul Haggis. Yeah, yeah that's he, right. I I enjoyed uh, his his moments in the film the most. Um, mm-hmm. Incredibly sincere, intelligent guy that just looks right in the camera and says, "I was stupid for believing in this. It, it was ridiculous." And he he said once he finally did the research because they they make you they make you not look at the internet. They tell you don't read any criticisms about the church. Don't do this. Don't do that. And all these people do that. They follow those instructions. And Paul at one point he he started to research things as he got tipped off you know something made him start to question and he started to look and then all of a sudden it was a it was just a flood of information on the web that he exposed himself to and the light bulb went on and he just realized oh my god now two of his three daughters are are gay 
And the church is strictly anti-gay and thinks that, that L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics and, and his process is the only way to cure yourself of this and all that. And he is a human rights activist of sorts and he, you know, very strongly believes in human rights and, and people's uh, free, freedom to live their lives the way that they want to. And of course, you know, when you, when you have a guy like, like Paul Haggis saying, my two children were not acceptable to the church, you know, that was a huge, factor i think in in his decision making as well but i think he's a he was a very honest and very likable guy that um was not afraid to call bs on himself have any of you guys read neil degrasse tyson's comments on the movie no what do you say no, what, i have no, what do you no. say so i have to preface this discussion by saying that i have mad respect for neil he's an excellent science communicator but Uh-oh. he's got a he has a blind spot here that is Interestingly, what? the hang on, the exact same blind spot that James Randi had. So 15 years ago, uh, Perry and I had to educate James Randi on cults because he made the exact same mistake that Neil is making today. Hopefully, uh, I'll have an opportunity to talk to Neil and correct him in the same way. Oh, so right, right. he's writing this. This is this was a uh, for the Daily Beast. He was interviewed and he said, "So you have people who are certain that a man in a robe transforms a cracker into the literal body of Jesus, saying that w- what goes on in Scientology is crazy. Let's realize this: what matters is not who says who's crazy. What matters is we live in a free country. You can believe whatever you want; otherwise, it's not a free country. It's something else." And then later on, he says. Religions, if you analyze them, who is to say that one religion is rational and another isn't? It looks like the older those thoughts have been around, the likelier it is to be declared a religion. If you're, if you've been around a thousand years, you're a religion. And if you've been around a hundred years, you're a cult. That's how people want to divide the kingdom. Uh, So the mistake (laughs) that Neil deGrasse Tyson is making is that he's only considering belief systems according to the details of their beliefs. And if if you're looking at it from that perspective, he's correct. There's no basis upon which to say that the beliefs of one faith are any more reasonable, rational, whatever, than the beliefs of another faith when you're talking about the miraculous, supernatural beliefs that different religions have. So, And yes, he's correct that you know the supernatural or miraculous beliefs of your own faith seem empowering or beautiful or whatever, while the same level of supernatural or miraculous beliefs in another faith seem crazy and weird, because that's just cultural. But he's missing the point entirely. The real difference between a religion and a cult is not the details of their belief. It is their behavior. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. What Scientology gets our attention because of their behavior. Yes, their beliefs are especially nutty because L. Ron Hubbard was a mediocre science fiction writer who wrote a science fiction, you know, cult. But it's the thing that this movie is about, Going Clear is about. And, if, and the reason that we pay attention to this as skeptics is because of their behavior. The, the fact that they do isolate people from their family. They isolate people right. from any disconfirming opinions or information. They attack their critics. I mean, and they attack them viciously. They took Legally. out a, they took out a whole page ad in the New York Times attacking yep. this movie, attacking all the people that defected from Scientology. They're now saying that they were kicked out because they were problems. But that's what they call anyone who disagrees with them is 
a problem, right? That's that's when I walked away from Judaism when I was thirteen. None of those things happened to yeah. me. I was I was free to go, and you know, frankly, they <laughs> I didn't suffer any repercussions of anything like that. But not with Scientology. You pay. Yeah. You pay for a long time. Once you're in, it's very hard There's to get a, out. So Randy made the same observation at a cult awareness conference that Perry and I and he was at. And he later had- How'd that go over? He had to apologize after we explained mm. to him why that was not the most astute observation to make. And then I wrote a, like a full article in their newsletter t- discussing the demarcation line between religions and, and cults. Because there's, you know, there, that was a very- that was harder because there's a lot of religious people in, in cult awareness, mm-hmm. you know, circles. But, and, and it's just true too. It's like, yeah, you can believe whatever you want. That's not the point. The point is how you treat people. It's how you treat your members. It's how you behave. Scientology hides what they believe from their own members until you've given them $200,000 or whatever. So you've gotten all the way to the. Oh, the members of Sea Org are in what, 40 cents an hour? <laughs> wow. The, mm-hmm. the, peop- the people in the front offices of, of Scientology? Yeah, that, that was a very interesting point that they brought up was that they're not being taxed. They're basically getting free labor and oh, yeah. they're getting massive donations. I mean, the, the, the church has uh, massive real estate holdings globally. That's where they're putting all their money into and it gives them a lot of political weight and, and power. Uh, and that but the IRS caved to them and their t- in their fight for tax exemption. You know, shame, shame on the IRS for for they fought them for a long time. But you know what? That they're in the same boat in that it's not the government's job to say that one set of beliefs are worthy of tax exemptions and another set of beliefs yeah. aren't. So they're kind of in a tough position. But again, if they fall back on determining that by behavior, then they'd be on more solid footing. But mm-hmm. still, it's still hard for the government to be in the business of this. I think the government shouldn't give any religion tax exemption. Why well, should they? That would be but good. if they're going to do it, then they're in a, this awful position where they can't really distinguish one from another. You know, Ratings for this have come in. Uh, 1.7 million viewers watched Going Clear uh, when it premiered. That's HBO's highest uh, number of viewers since the 2006 Hurricane Katrina uh, documentary directed by Spike Lee. So, uh, look, hey, that's probably a million or more people who didn't know anything about the practices of Scientology who are now aware. Now aware. How does that compare to the South Park episode where they exposed the beliefs of Scientology? It fell about 12 million short of the South Park yeah. number. But again, South Park, <laughs> South Park focused on beliefs while this movie focused on behavior, which makes yeah, it right. more devastating. All right. That, so watch the movie. I think that's my recommendation. Watch Going Clear. I think it's very, very enlightening. All right, Jay, you're two weeks behind on Who's That Noisy? We've missed it. Come on, get us caught up. No guesses, huh, guys? Uh, it sounds no. like something uh. electronical. Uh, uh, duh. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's something called Eurosignal. That was a European paging system. And it was in operation between uh. Uh, 74 to 97. And, you know, I would imagine that, that everybody on the other side of the planet is going to recognize that one, and most people from the United States would have no idea what it was. But it was actually um, introduced in Germany in 74, and it moved to France a year later, and and then it finally was in Switzerland in 1985. Um, And it has a very uh, similar internet protocol-y noise about it. Yeah. 
And I just found that to be interesting and also like one of those things where, you know, a lot of people do know about it, but a lot of people don't. If you played the sound that a modem makes when it's connecting, like we would instantly recognize it. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure people our age in Europe would recognize that sound very quickly. Okay. Mm. Cool. That's awesome. Well, what do you got for this week? All right, guys. So have a listen to this one. Uh-huh. Is that cool? Evan, what is it? What is that? Oh, I don't know, but it's... uh. It's loud and it's uh It's weird and pissed off. Yeah, right. Exciting. <laughs> <laughs> or excitable. <laughs> um I think you guys are gonna love it when I tell you what this is and what I'll give you I'll give a tiny little hint. It's it is something that most of you are familiar with, used in a very unique way. Very unique? Very in a, unique. In a <laughs> unique way. Excuse me, sorry. I'm I <laughs> I am a subject of my culture in a unique way. All right. All right, cool, Jake. <laughs> the most okay. unique. The most unique. All right, thanks. We are going to do a dumbest thing I heard this week. This is more of an entire article than one sentence, but <laughs> this is from our old friend, Deepak Chopra. Deecho to his friends. Deecho. He uh, published an article on CNN, an opinion piece. The title is Deepak Chopra, colon, The Problem with Atheism. It's interesting because, you know, Deepak... Uh, in, if you read certain paragraphs in isolation, he actually signs, sounds quite reasonable. <laughs> in isolation, <laughs> out of context. <laughs> yeah. One half sentence at a time. So, for example, he writes, We all fall somewhere on the sliding scale of belief and unbelief. Secular society has sharpened our demand for truth. To me, this is a positive development. If belief in God can't stand up to proof, it won't sustain a person through difficult times. You know, if I didn't tell you who wrote that and you read that in isolation, you know, yeah, okay. Wouldn't think deep on you know, that's for sure. You would, you know, that's not bad. But then, of course, he's got it. He's just setting you up, right? All right. He says, I consider skepticism a way station on the way to a higher, more fulfilling kind of spirituality. Okay. Sure, you do. What if you're skeptical of spirituality? <laughs> then you're just getting off at that station. <laughs> you're getting right off there. at that station, yeah. <laughs> Next stop. <laughs> reality right the sentence that that i think where he goes you know he goes off the rails i mean he still has this he's still laboring under i think these just straw men ideas of what atheism and skepticism are uh for example i feel i feel for people who get stuck in any belief system including rigid skepticism they are signing up for the suppression of curiosity that's the sentence that wins the dumbest thing I heard this week. As painful as it may be to question the faith you were brought up in, it's worse to be stuck. The human story is about growth and evolution. He's talked about people stuck in the religion they were born to. Meanwhile, he's an Indian who's promoting Indian religion. You know, he hasn't strayed too far from the religion of his culture. So, no, atheism is not about the suppression of curiosity. That's the thing that he, that's the drum he keeps beating, and he's been beating that for years, and it is simply not true. Skepticism and curiosity go hand in hand. They are two sides of the same coin. If you want to explore the universe and understand the universe and engage in science, as Carl Sagan said in the 1970s in Cosmos, Right, to paraphrase, you need curiosity and skepticism both. Both. Yeah. Right? 
How many times have you heard that, Evan? Heard, heard Sagan say that? I mean, Deepak is, Hundreds. what does that make him? 40 years behind it? We've, come on, we sorted this out 40 years ago, Deepak. This is not a new idea. Come on. How many times do we have to get correct with, you on this point? Get, get with the 70s. Yeah, get with the 1970s. <laughs> That's not why he's saying it, Steve. I know, but still, if you're intellectually um, honest, you know, then you should at least change your, what you say. You know, he's criticizing skeptics. He's not a skeptic. He's criticizing skeptics. If skeptics keep saying, but that's not what we think, you're mischaracterizing our belief and you just keep ignoring them, not answering the, the, uh, criticism, not altering your position, but just ignoring it. Then you're being intellectually dishonest. You know, what else is there to say? Your position is not worth taking seriously. If he wants to be taken, you know, I don't, you know, he's probably beyond that too. But if you want your position to be taken, taken seriously, you have to engage with the people that the intellectual tradition you're, you're criticizing, right? He writes things like this so that he can go back and say, or the people who support him can go back and say, Oh no, wait. Deepak's really being the skeptical one mm-hmm. here. He's the one who's, who's bringing it up. Oh God. It's the, it's the people who are the hardcore skeptics who are running away from this idea and not wanting to, to confront Deepak about their, uh, rigid skepticism. Yeah. Which is kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, cynicism. Right. That's cynicism. It's not yes. skepticism. Yeah. All right. Well, Deepak is All hopeless. Right. He's hopeless. Well, guys. <laughs> Well, guys, we have just one ad this week, Simply Safe Home Security. Yeah, if you're interested in home security, you know, we think that Simply Safe is a really solid company. Evan, are you feeling secure? See, I don't know, Jay. I, 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 you know, when I don't feel secure is when salespeople try to call me and sell me on a big system, something elaborate that I really don't need and a big contract. I get stuck paying these big bills. That, that scares me a little bit, but you don't get that with Simply Safe Home Security. No long-term contract, and you're going to get 24-7 protection by trained professionals, so you're not giving up anything. And guys, you get all of that for just $15 per month. So go to their website and check it out. It's simplisafe.com forward slash skeptics, and Simplisafe is spelled S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E. And when you do that, you get an exclusive 10% off offer. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is fictitious. Oh, God. You guys ready for this week? Yes. All right. Here we go. Item number one. A new study confirms the popular belief that batteries bounce higher when they are out of juice than when they are fresh. Item number two, engineers at NIST have created a, quote, nanomechanical plasmonic phase modulator, unquote, which they claim can be used to fit an estimated 2.4 terabytes of data on an optical disc the size of a conventional CD. What? And item number three, researchers have taught blind rats to effectively see and remember how to navigate a maze by attaching a geomagnetic compass to their brain. All right, Jay, go first. Okay, so this first one about the uh, battery bouncing, they bounce higher when they're out of juice. And uh, yes, I agree with that one. I think that is uh, that is a fact. 
It's factual, Steve. If I go into the science behind this, you're not going to understand it, so I'm not going to bother explaining why. Just take my word for it. Okay, Thank moving you, Jay. on to the second one. This one about the engineers at, uh, at NIST. They created this nanomechanical plasmonic phase modulator, which can't possibly <laughs> be real because the name is so – like that's so what? Like 1950s type? Where would you date that? That's uh, the, the Martian yes. from Bugs Bunny. Yeah, the, the aluminum 200 space modulator or whatever thing he... At last, after 2,000 years of work, the aluminum Q36 explosive space modulator. Exactly. Modulator. Modulator. But, but the, uh, the uh, real thing here is the 2.4 terabytes of data on an optical disc. The size of a CD. Everybody says that. On the size of a CD. Because that's the standard. Yeah, I got you. All right. Well, okay. It sounds pretty, you know, retro badass, and and I I don't see why someone couldn't have figured out a way to do this. Uh, this one is like they taught this blind rat to effectively see because he's basically using a magnet with his brain, with the brains. Yeah, but he's not. When you say quote unquote see, Steve. For example, in yeah. the same exact way that you might say that a bat sees with his echolocation, right? Yeah, the problem I have with this one is that I'm glad you brought up the bat because the bat has specific brain architecture to deal with, you know, putting together sound so it, it, it turns it into, you know, some type of thing that it sees where it has a concept of, of distance and shape and all that. And to a, an animal like a mouse that doesn't have that, that built in architecture in the brain, rat. Right? a rat, whatever. <laughs> I don't see how they can, you know, do that. So I'm going to say that one's a fake. Okay, Evan. Batteries bounce higher when they are out of juice than when they are fresh. Do you, get, do you guys ever hear that as a kid? I, I I suppose I heard it at some point in my life. I don't recall ever sticking as far as, you know, a, a real thing in my brain or that I would ever really conf- use that technique to confirm when my batteries are dead. Uh, why would that happen, though? Why would it bounce higher when they're out of juice? I, I, I don't know enough about... We're talking about... um. Disposable like batteries, AA batteries, I yeah. Yeah, double A's, nine volts, or whatever. I I don't know enough about the weight or or how it changes upon it being uh, full of juice versus not. I suppose there could be a weight difference though, and that could explain it. The next one about nanomechanical plasmonic phase modulator. Uh, okay, the bottom line is fitting an estimated two point four terabytes of data on an optical disc the size of a conventional CD. Uh, where are we up As to As opposed now? to those unconventional CDs. Remember jazz drives? Steve, oh, yeah. You were so excited yes. when you got your first jazz drive in like 1997 or <laughs> Whatever. That is the coolest thing. Well, I mean, we're, we're, those are like 100 like megabytes. 128 megabytes. Yeah, 100 like going from one, you know, 1.4 meg to 100, it was, it was a big leap. But, but jazz drives, I mean, that went the way of Crystal Pepsi or something. And it was around for like six months and then no yeah. Oh, they were around for a couple of years. They were. Were yeah. they? I don't know. You're the only person I um, I ever knew who had one. So, <laughs> but in any case, uh, that's a lot, I suppose. I don't know. Don't have a good feeling about that one. The last one about blind rats effectively seeing, remembering how to navigate a maze by attaching a geomagnetic compass to their brain. Uh, Come on, baby. A geomagnetic compass. Gosh, I don't know about. Gee, how, where's the connection there? How something has to be connecting at that point. I'm kind of think I'm going to agree with Jay, and I think this one's the fiction. I don't know how you how how that would link back up. How you could possibly and 
and and get some sort of uh, positive results and that they could use that information too 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 far a stretch i think i think the rats one is fiction and bob <sighs> oh let's see all right i'll start with three yeah, i'm kind of buying this one i remember um unrelated news items from a couple of years ago that uh where people were able to get a sense of where they were completely outside of the conventional uh, visual pathways um so so this one doesn't surprise me as much as you might think so yeah um the other ones though yeah some of these are wacky so let's go over the the nanomechanical plasmonic phase modulator that one that's too awesome of a phrase for Steve to come up with I think I think that's that's a real thing and and I'm and I'm, <laughs> wow. and I'm trying to it's just too I mean it's called a backhanded I'm, compliment I mean I couldn't even come up with that one that that's an awesome string of four words right there I love it um I'm, I'm trying to parse the words and what they could possibly mean uh nanomechanical sure just very tiny elements plasmonic uh, I'm not sure how that's going to fit in but phase modulator sure you're you're somehow manipulating the phase of of some of, of the information that you're encoding, I kind of make sense of that, and I just think that Steve would think that we would immediately try to shoot that one down just because of the word modulator. Uh, I think that's what he was thinking. Uh, the first one, I have no idea. I, sure, it makes some sort of sense that a, the the difference, the chemical difference between a charged battery and a regular and a and a discharged battery could have some impact on its stiffness in such a way. That it would impact how it bounces. Sure, that's possible. Um, but other than that, I, I have no idea. So wait, which one was I going to pick here? So, but yeah, even though it makes sense, the other ones make maybe a little bit more sense. So I'm going to say the battery is fiction. Okay. So you all agree on number two. So we'll start there. Engineers at NIST have created a nanomechanical plasmonic phase modulator which they claim can be used to fit an estimated 2.4 terabytes of data on an optical disc. And that's a nice jump. That's a nice jump. Let me finish. The size of a conventional CD. (laughs) You guys all think this one is science. And this one is, do you guys know what NIST stands for, by the way? National Institute of Science and Technology. And I haven't done that in a while. Sorry. This one is... (laughs) The fiction sweep. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, you sweep it. Oh, sweep out the broom, baby. Fuck. You're right, Bob. I didn't make up the term. I just completely changed what it is. <laughs> but I left the term the Damn. same. Because uh. it's so cool. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Nanomechanical plasmonic phase modulators that is my favorite phrase. Damn. I love it. I know. Me too, I, Steve. Yeah. So I, I knew about the batteries. I saw a demonstration. All right. Yeah. We'll get there. Hold on. Hey, so okay, so this was uh in fact the article mentions Marvin the Martian. <laughs> of course. You can't help but think of phase him. Modulator. Marvin the Martian, yeah. right? He was awesome. All right, so <laughs> but it has nothing to do with C D technology uh or optical discs. Uh what it is though, it is computer related. This is could be a way to get the best of both worlds between you know electronics and photonics. So Ooh. electrical, you know, the, the current uh, computers, which are essentially, you know, commercial nanoscale electronics, uh, they can, we can make them very small, but there's a, a limit, an inherent limit in how fast information can travel through wires. 
Fiber optics have an advantage in that they can carry information 10,000 times faster than wires. However, they have an inherent limit in size because they can't be smaller than the wavelength. Right? They have to be at least, I should say, they have to be at least half the wavelength of the light that they're using. And so that creates limits in how small they can be. So they're bigger than conventional computer chips, for example, built on that technology. So they're faster but bigger. So it's part of the one of the technological hurdles you know, that we're trying to get over. So scientists have uh, published a uh, some research that's kind of a proof of concept where they have using um, plasmons, which are far smaller than the wavelength of the original light that created them. Uh, they are they're almost like they're little like wavelets of electrons. Um, yeah, the plasmons are free to travel down to nanoscale wires or gaps in metals, unlike light. So you can basically use plasmons and get the speed of light, but you, they can travel in wires. So you get the the microscopic scale of current computers. That makes sense. Um, so again, you get you're getting the kind of the the size of the wire based chips with the speed of the photonic based chips in plasmonic phase modulation and it's the, the phase modulation is part is part of the technology the, you know whenever you're using anything is modulating phases what you're trying to manipulate there is the interference right if you get them to exactly line up uh, then you can cause constructive or destructive interference and that's part of how they get the the size of the waves down as small as they do totally cool I completely made this stuff up about the CD technology but while I was at it, I said, well, let me, I wonder where we are with <laughs> optical yeah. disc technology. And what do you guys think? Have you looked at this anytime recently? No. 97 um, Jazz Drive. <laughs> I still think 2.4, two I mean, 2.4 terabytes is well above what is commercially available. There might be something in the lab that yeah. could maybe come close. But so not. what's interesting is that we've lived through this. So this is like, we know, I'll know this that, yeah, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we had CDs, then DVDs, then Blu-rays, and this was essentially used for um, certain kinds of applications. Uh, for like the the desktop user, I, you know, we would use this for archiving data. Right, D a DVD can hold four gigabytes of information. At the time, that was yeah. a lot, and so you know, I could burn uh, burn a DVD and store all of my pictures on there and just archive them. So I know I have a permanent hard copy that will last for years and it's ten, a good backup yeah ten, 10 years maybe though but okay uh, even more than 10 but still so it was yeah, it was well, you know one option especially, especially when the price came down <laughs> you know you could get the yeah you can get the more expensive disc that would last for 20 years or whatever right. so it was actually a nice little option there for a while and also um computer games you know usually came on dvds but in the you know last ten years, everything has been moving away from optical discs, uh, cloud really? storage, um, thumb drives, you know, solid state drives, and the uh, disc capacities. You know, we're still stuck with Blu-rays. With so I've been looking at that like for a, you can get a Blu-ray burner for a few hundred dollars, and the Blu-ray discs if you buy like a stack of fifty for like fifty-five bucks, so they cost a little bit more than a dollar each, and they and they can hold twenty-five gigabytes. That's not bad, but 25 gigabytes. Yeah, I mean, you got we terabyte have, hard drives. I know we have terabytes right. of data to back up. But 25 gigabytes at a time is just not worth it. All right, so there's two different 
technologies. There's probably more, but I mean, I found yeah. two. Holographic that, is one, right? Yeah. So one is holographic versatile disc. And lame name. Guess what they're up to, Bob? Um, a couple hundred gig. Six terabytes. Whoa! Whoa! Yeah. So Holy this is theoretical. Shit. This is theoretical. So okay. yeah, the the uh, it all depends on the wavelength of light that they use and the number of layers that they use. Right. So right. I think like right now, you know, they could make ones with like two hundred gigabytes or even five hundred gigabytes, and then right. they're aiming for they they've been able to demonstrate I think five terabytes with a with a three micrometer on a ten centimeter disc. So uh, this is what I'm this is what I'm reading. I, you know, this is uh. But this is not available, obviously, on the market. This is just the technology. These companies though, haven't been able to bring these to the market because I think that it's, the market's just not there at the moment, and it just takes it's taking too long to, I guess, get them over the technological threshold. And you wonder, is there going to be a market for them? I mean, I, yeah, if you could, if I could buy a DV, if I could buy a, a, an optical disc burner for under a thousand dollars, and it could store five terabytes. On a disc, and that disc costs less than fifty dollars. That would be a reasonable option for archiving, you know. Yeah. Th- for fine. example, I'm just spit- spitballing numbers, but just, but these these burners right now costs cost more like fifteen thousand dollars. You know, these are that's that's a little prohibitive. This is yeah, obvious. Yeah. This is like you know, like any of these technologies, they always cost many thousands of dollars until you start. You're in the early adopter phase or just only big businesses or whatever can use them and then, but eventually the price will come down to the consumer level. There's another technology they're calling the next gen Blu-ray, but Sony and Panasonic, um, they have a new 300 gigabyte disc, which again, they say that with multiple layers and eventually they're hoping to get this technology up to one terabyte each. Yeah. For three um, writable, it'd be even better, but. Yeah, I don't know about that, but so so that's another technology that they're trying to get up to a terabyte. Again, even when you get up to the terror, when you start talking about the number of terabytes, yeah, that's then we're talking. Yeah, that's absolutely, and then it's just a matter of price. And I just would be interesting if they come back because I haven't burned a disc in so long. I mean, it's just there's just no, it doesn't fit any niche in my computer use yeah, anymore. We don't really, you know? we don't really need it anymore. I mean, yeah, anything you want to transport, you can just push online. Push online or buy a cheap thumb drive, right? Get a damn cheap, exactly. thumb drive. But if you could be, you could be burning four or five terabyte discs for permanent archival purposes, I would do that. Yes, I, that would, I would. Yep. I would definitely do that. That's like, yeah. I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a, a drive bigger than a couple terabyte. I mean, that's that, my whole, yeah, my entire footprint. Bam. Right on the one, one disc. So anyway, that's cool. That sort of led me. Through the back door to the, to revisit that whole issue of optical discs too. I'm keep an eye on that. All right. Researchers have taught blind uh, rats to effectively see and remember how to navigate a maze by attaching a geomagnetic compass to their brains. That one is mm-hmm. very cool science. And Jay, interestingly, yes. you hit upon, you hit upon a core part of this research. Of course. I and did. that is it demonstrates how versatile and plastic mammalian brains are. The fact is, you could take a rat who's blind and you can't teach their brain how to use a completely novel type of sensory input. How, that, do you know the implications of that? I mean, I, we could, we could be jacking all different, different t- types of sensory data, um, into our brain and our brain will be able to deal with it. 
Yeah, Bob, you're interested in jacking off. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, right, Bob. <laughs> yeah, jacking in the brain and data. So most importantly, though, guys, I, I, was, I was the closest to winning this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so really, really interesting. That's that's incredible. So they basically were, you know, these rats were, I think, I don't know if the strain is blind, probably. Right. But, uh, they, and they, it's a visual cortex. So the visual cortex is yeah. actually taking completely different sensory data and making use of it. Yeah, that's exactly that's right. That's incredible. That, that bodes so well because that's one of the things in science fiction where you have people, you know, uh, hooked up to the, to their computer and and do and you know taking in different types of information or sensory data. Right. And it's like I always thought, well, I mean, I hope the brain could actually handle that because because you know you you get a, a new flood of information like that into the brain and it might not be able to handle yeah. it. And this looks like it can, which is great. This is one of those things I've completely changed my mind about in the last 10 years, just based upon the data. I mean, 10 years ago, if you asked me, I think most neurologists at the time, or maybe 15 years ago, that how would the brain deal with novel inputs? And it's like, well, you know, if you're, if you're an infant, maybe, but if you're an adult, like, you know, could your brain control a third robotic arm? No, you don't have the cortex for it. Your cortex doesn't map to it. Could it see and, Things that you haven't seen before. It's like no, you don't. You, you, your brain has to map to its sensory and motor control. But that's homunculus. Not, that's not true because the brain. I mean, it's true that that's your. That's you have to have that at some point in time. But the point that we what we've learned in the last 10, 15 years is that brain plasticity allows the brains of even adults to map to novel both motor output and sensory input. We can, Bob, not only can we take new sensory input, there's right now the data is moving in the direction. The studies are starting to show that we may be, we may be able to interface with the matrix. You know what I mean? Yes. We may be able to occupy wow. a virtual representation of ourselves in a computer simulation and our brain will adopt that information. We may be able to you know, take your head and put it on a robot and have it control the robot, you know, to have it mapped to Bobby. the body of the robot. It seems like all those things are going to be possible. <laughs> or, you know, take a paraplegic <laughs> or even a quadriplegic and give them prosthetics and their brains can, brain can learn to use those prosthetics. Right. Or, or, it, give, oh, or give awesome. somebody, a healthy person, a third arm. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Bob. You're dying for that. Yeah. <laughs> some people say some productivity people say, goes up fifty percent with a third or a tail. How'd you have a? How'd you like to have a prehensile tail? That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be cool. Let's uh, go back to number one. A new study confirms the popular belief that batteries bounce higher when they are out of juice than uh, when they are fresh. That one is science. Oh, I was. I, that's okay. One of those things you hear. Oh yeah, like it's a popular myth. You know, an old you know, wives' tale type never of thing. Never heard it. Uh, yeah, but it's, it turns out to, it's true. However, it's a little wrong. I mean, it's oversimplified. A dead battery bounces higher than a fresh battery, but a battery that bounces high isn't necessarily completely dead, right? Okay. What they did was they took, um, 11 batteries and they dropped them down tubes, like plastic tubes, just so that the, the, the falling and the bouncing of the batteries will be controlled. You know, they wouldn't bounce all over the place. Yeah. They'll fall straight down and bounce straight back up. And they dropped them all at the same time. And then so that you could, and the, and to the batteries were depleted progressively. So like on the left side is a fresh battery. On the far right side is a completely dead battery. And then in between, it's a spectrum, you know, of. Yeah. Different amounts of drain. So essentially, the video of the batteries dropping 
and then getting to their high point creates the graph. <laughs> you know yes, what I mean? Yes. The batteries give you that you can imagine That's that. That's cool. Yeah. And what you find is that mm. the batteries bounce higher and higher and higher as they get depleted, but about somewhere in the middle, it plateaus. So like when the battery's half dead, it's bouncing as high as it's going to bounce. I see. So if, yeah, if you have a high bouncing battery, it could still be half ready, you know, half uh, full. It's not necessarily completely dead, but you may want to check it out. But the batteries that don't bounce at all are, are pretty close to being fresh. And of course, you know, you, you want to know, well, why is this true? And as you said, Bob, yeah, there's nothing magical about this. There's stuff is happening inside the battery that could change its physical properties. And so scientists have all these same scientists have discovered what's happening in there that does that, that as the battery gets depleted, that you get a layer of zinc, it says surrounds a brass core in the battery, like a donut around a hole. And essentially, you get zinc oxide begins to form. And these uh, zinc oxide molecules are like little springs. You can think uh. of them that way. So instead of the energy of the of the impact getting spread diffusely through the battery, you get absorbed more, and released. You, yeah. It gets absorbed and released in these zinc oxide little springs. So it becomes bouncier and bouncier as you develop more and more zinc oxide. Uh, but that plateaus, you know. Mm. At some point, um, and then, you know, depleting the battery more doesn't make bounce, doesn't make it bounce any significantly higher. So that was interesting. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. I'm all pissed, right. Well, I didn't see it. Well, it works. Thank you. It's a good, yeah, it was a, I liked all these items. I mean, I always am more interested in just how cool the items are, but I couldn't resist nanomechanical plasmonic phase. Ah, oh, <laughs> yeah. That, no. that's, yeah what, that's what threw me. <laughs> it was too yeah. good. It was just too fucking too yeah, good. Yeah. Discombobulated yeah. this. All right, Evan, do you have a quote for us this week? I do. The quote this week was suggested by SGU listener Joseph Minone from Havertown, Pennsylvania. Thank you, Joseph. We appreciate this. Here it goes. Science is more than the mere description of events as they occur. It's an attempt to discover order, to show that certain events stand in lawful relations to other events. And that was said by American psychologist, behaviorist, Author, inventor, social philosopher, B.F. Skinner. Oh, really? B.F. Skinner. Uh, one of the things he's well known for is the, the Skinner, Skinner box. box. Yeah. <laughs> I call it a Monroe box. <laughs> <laughs> I put a child in there and raise him like a wolf for 20 years. I think he'll have yeah. aggressions towards My him. theory is he'll be abnormal when he grows up. <laughs> <laughs> and not quite the yeah. same, as, but a funny Simpsons take on, on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he's, I guess he's a bit controversial, huh? In terms of his, Some his findings, yeah, I don't, they're not really generally accepted anymore, but. Right, right, because he didn't take genetics and some other, you know, evolutionary psychology, some other hey, things. Hey, science progresses, you know. But, yeah, it does, it does. And, you know, he was from another age, sort yeah. of. Oh, and did you know, did you know, B.F. Skinner, the initials B.F., do you know what those stand for? I do not want to hazard a guess. <laughs> Bob Frank! I know, but BFF stands for. <laughs> BF Skinner, Burris Frederick Skinner. Thank you, Evan. So next week we will be at Nexus. There's still time to register. There's still plenty of seats available. You can register for the Friday Night Extravaganza with Bill Nye and George Robb. That is going to be a blast. Ooh, I can't wait. Can't wait. You could do that by itself, or you could do it as part of going to the overall conference. Go to NECSS.org. Check out what we got. We'd love to see you there. Come to our table. We'll be 
you know, meeting listeners and selling swag. It's going to be a lot of fun. And registration is open for the amazing meeting 2015, July 16th through 19th, 2015 at the Tropicana in Las Vegas. Go to amazingmeeting.com. There's a register now button. Click it. It'll take you to the registration page. The SGU will be there. We're going to be having our typical SGU dinner and doing a show live from the stage, and we'll have our table, and it's going to be a lot of fun as well. Just a lot hotter than Nexus. Yeah. <laughs> Just a bit. Right. Right. In the desert in July. But, yep. uh, I hear there's air conditioning. There's air, so yeah, we'll you don't even on. know. You're in air conditioning the whole time. Well, guys, thanks for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.